Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. All right, good morning and welcome back to the Thursday Morning Report. I'll be your host, Doug McKenty. Uh, today we're talking about uh, the ongoing nuclear disaster in Japan. First, I'd like to start out with uh, uh, Dave Turner. Dave, are you there? I'm here. Good morning, Doug. Uh, excellent, Dave. How's it going? Oh, it's rainy here, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, it, it, these are these are tough times. Uh, just the unbelievable devastation of our sister city. So a lot of us here are, are working hard to see what we can do to help. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us really quickly about uh, how, what does that sister city mean? What happened? When did that get started? And what's the connection there? Ten years ago, uh, we started sending kids, uh, students, back and forth. Uh, we'd ha- the Japanese would send some kids here from Otsuchi, uh, and then uh, we'd send, the next year, we'd send kids over there, and it would it'd be a two-week uh, stay. But it really just, uh, my son was on one of, on the first uh, exchange to Otsuchi, changed his life. Later, he ended up spending another year in an uh, exchange program in Germany. But it, it just touches the kids so much and the families and and over the 10 years it's just intertwined and we got started really because Otsuchi uh, uh, Ken uh, someone we call Ken-san uh, drew a line straight across the Pacific uh, and uh, right along the 39th parallel and it bumps right into Fort Bragg and he, he uh, contacted us and came over and visited us and asked if we would uh, want to Participate, and it started at the school level uh, in 2005 when I was mayor. We went over informally. We had a big ceremony in Otsuchi, and I signed documents, uh, you know, making it a formal relationship between the cities as well as the schools. Although the schools and 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 city are are one and the same uh, organization in Japan, not unlike uh, here. But it it's so we've had this relationship and and. They're just part of our our family in town now, and to have over half of them missing, and anyone who's who's done a little bit of uh, paying attention to the news or gone online and looked at some of the pictures available, it's just it's it's total devastation. The town is gone. Yeah, from what I understand, there's about ten thousand people missing out out of a total population of fifteen thousand. Right, seven, uh, fifteen to seventeen thousand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard yesterday that it maybe is down a little lower, maybe eight thousand missing now. So it's a little better news, but it, I mean, there's, there's, it's just unbelievable. There, there's a, a headline in uh, English, uh, London paper yesterday: Otsuchi, the Japanese town that must rebuild without its leaders. Because right after their, I mean, they had a 9-0 earthquake, so the mayor told everyone to get out of the, their two-story uh, uh, you know, concrete building mm-hmm. to make sure it was safe. They're setting up out front with a tent and things to, to help organize for the earthquake uh, uh, relief and, you know, just coordinate the services they would provide uh, and be safe from a building he wasn't sure was safe. And uh, they have, they've got these 30-foot walls, uh, tsunami walls. When I was there, I was amazed at these gates that could close on the, at, on the river uh, when a, with a tsunami war- warning. So they, they felt safe behind their 30-foot tsunami wall. They had, you know, but the, the earthquake was just, just off their coast and uh, 9-0. And uh, as, as we've all seen, it just was bigger than anything they ever imagined. And, and uh, they, as it came, they're out in front. Uh, you know, they're 
of the of city hall looking at the ocean as this wave came uh, you know they went into the city hall and up some of them got up to the roof and were safe but most of them the mayor and most of the their 30 member what they call assembly like our council uh were were killed the mayor's body was found a, a couple kilometers away but it's just so they're not only devastated but they don't unlike some of the other cities and villages up and down the coast they don't have the infrastructure to get on the list for for the for the national government uh, to help so the, as they start getting housing for everyone they they don't even have the the systems in place to 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 participate so they're just mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable and uh, well, can you tell us really quickly what we can do to try to help out? Well, we started a fund, and we're just it's amazing how our, our coastal communities pull together. Uh, we've, we've raised 35000 so far. Our, our, our goal is 50000 All I think we're going to hit that, and I, I hope we can hit 100000 But it's a drop in the bucket what they need, but, but we're going to be there to help any, however we can. We'll be, we've offered to take anybody that needs just shelter and come get get over here. We, a lot of homes have opened up and said they'll they'll take folks. But at, if if people go to Harvest Market or Mendel Lake Credit Union, they can they can give money to the Otsuchi Recovery Fund. They can go to otsuchi.org. That's O T S U C H I dot org, and they can donate on PayPal or with a credit card. Or there's the address of the credit union um, to mail in a money if they'd like. It's a credit union at Oak and Main here in Fort Bragg, but that's the best way to help. Right now, uh, they're 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 finally getting things like blankets and things in there. I mean, on top of earthquake, tsunami, then they had snow, and 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 then they got cut off from Tokyo by the the nuclear uh, situation in between them and and uh, Tokyo. They're not threatened themselves with the radiation uh, threat there. But it's 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 bollocks the uh, ability for services to get to them. So it just you know it's just one thing after another. But we're going to uh, help our sister city every way we can, and and we're going to help them build up their infrastructure. And we're in contact with the with the Iwate Prefecture, which is their like their, their county government, uh, which and and we've let them know that uh, we want to help and. But their their government uh, will rebuild the city government. They've got a temporary city hall, and we'll we're going to help. All right. Well, very good. Thanks for joining me. I've got to get on uh, to my next guest now. Okay. Uh, but well, I, I well thanks for your concern, Doug. You bet. Thanks for the story, and I hope uh, that you get a lot of response uh, in terms of uh, some. It's help. amazing. People are just pitching in from every direction. All right. Very good. Well, thank, thank you very much. Bye bye. Take care. All right, one more really quickly. Uh, the Levita School is sending folks home, so it looks like there's no school today over there. All right, uh, quickly now, it's 9.17. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report. Uh, I'm being joined at this moment by Mr. Robert Alvarez of the uh, Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, he's a nuclear expert, and he is going to help to explain uh, exactly what's going on there at the Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear facility in Japan. Mr. Alvarez, are you there? Yes, I am. Excellent. How, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and thanks for your patience. Um, I know you've been on hold for a little while. So just to get started, um, I guess what do you see, what's going on on the ground there right now? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm far away, and I have to rely on whatever uh, the Japanese uh, government nuclear safety authorities and the Japanese utility and the news media is reporting. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I can, from these fragments of information, what I can surmise is that uh, they are making progress, but they are definitely not out of the woods. Yeah, I'd like to, well, first of all, what do you think about uh, the media coverage? I mean, are you satisfied that we're getting enough information, or do you think that uh, maybe there should be a little bit more of a realistic perspective on this? I think there has not been, uh, uh, there has not been adequate transparency on what, what's happening and what may happen. And I, uh, on, on the parts of both the uh, Japanese nuclear industry, Japanese government, and the U.S. government, um, there there, I think that there is a. Uh, uh, you have to understand that these are programs that, for decades, 
uh, both here and the United States, have been operating under conditions of secrecy, isolation, and privilege. And they have bureaucratic cultures which uh, frown upon and, and, uh, uh, and do not uh, like to share bad news. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I noticed was the, uh, the USS Ronald Reagan came in to help out. Well, they were 100 miles offshore, and then after the first uh, containment dome exploded, they decided to move to 200 miles away. Uh, it's almost just an indication, I guess, of what the U.S. military is thinking about the situation, although they haven't released uh, the exact numbers, really. Well, one one large rea- uh, aircraft carrier, U.S. aircraft carrier, has bugged out of the region altogether. Mm-hmm for fear of contamination of the entire vessel. All right, well, well, now what I'd like to do is go, what we've heard a lot on the news is this comparison between Fukushima and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Uh, and I just wanted to try to give our listeners a perspective on exactly you know, what these three different events are uh, so that we can see you know, the rating system that they've kind of come up with for us where Three Mile Island, I guess, was a five and and then uh, Chernobyl is a seven, and Fukushima was somewhere below Three Mile Island, and then they kind of slowly bumped it up. But I, for for just a moment, can you tell us what happened at Three Mile Island? Uh, Three Mile Island resulted in a combination of human error and design error, where uh, there was a loss of coolant that uh, they they could not uh, uh, sort of come to terms with, and were on the brink of a big, a major core meltdown, and were able to stop it and experienced a, car, a partial core melt. Uh, the reactor did release a significant amount of radiation, which was of uh, 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 a nature that could that was highly diffused. Uh, and they had backup power. I mean, uh, they didn't. The Three Mile Island uh, did not experience uh, a devastating earthquake, and it didn't cripple uh, four reactors at once. So yeah, that was I, just that was just one reactor. Is that correct? That's right. And, and quite frankly, I think that uh, from from the perspective of what's happening at Fukushima, Three Mile Island is in the rearview mirror in terms of you know rating it. I think that uh, five is uh, is not an accurate rating of the nature of the hazard at mm-hmm. uh, those reactors. I think that that is a an absolute example of downplaying the dangers. Yeah, I mean at Three Mile Island, the the containment dome was on there, and, uh, it got a little bit hot, the pressure built up, and they released some steam, and then they got the whole thing under control. Uh, that's how I kind of... Well, surmised. and they also had a partial core melt. Right. And uh, So, a, can you explain quickly the difference between a partial melt and a, you know, and a, and a full meltdown? I, you well, know, a full meltdown is, you know, could lead to catastrophic results. It could, uh, it could cause the primary reactor vessel to be breached... It can lead to uh, events such as major explosions. It can blow open the secondary containment, the thick concrete barrier around the reactor. And what adds uh, an additional dimension of hazard at Fukushima, which I'm actually more worried about than the reactors at this stage, are the spent fuel pools. Mm -hmm. They are not under any containment. And if you look at the satellite photographs uh, of, of what has happened there, there are at least two pools. These pools, by the way, are 70, 80 feet above ground, and they're exposed to the open sky. One pool drained enough to have caused a hydrogen explosion, and uh, that's a very serious matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, are these pools within the containment dome? That's what no, I. No, no, no. They have no. Con- they have no no concrete containment over them. They have a mm-hmm. a tin roof over them. Okay. And so when the hydrogen explosions occurred in these two units, units three and four, they blew those buildings apart. Those buildings are kind of of the quality you would find at car dealerships. Right. And uh, so the pool is actually covered by that kind of building. And so when they blew off the sides and the roof, the pool was exposed to the open sky. And you could see the steam billowing out of the pool, indicating that it was overheating. And eventually, the Japanese authorities have reported that the pool in Unit 4 experienced a hydrogen explosion, which means that the water drained enough that it heated up the, the spent fuel and the zirconium in the spent fuel so that uh, it, the zirconium uh, essentially oxidized very rapidly. It's very reactive at high heat, and uh, 
uh, peeled off the hydrogen from the water that was surrounding it or the steam and led to a, a rather large uh, destructive hydrogen explosion. And what, you're, what, what I'm concerned about is that these spent fuel pools have several times more long-lived radioactivity in them than the reactor core. Right. I mean, what is the? Well, actually, really quickly, can we just go back to Chernobyl as well? Because I'd like to give people, and then we'll and then we'll talk about the spent fuel pools a little bit more and what's going on at Fukushima. Sure. I just want to try to, to to put it in perspective first, because at Chernobyl, as I recall, there was only one reactor there too. What made Chernobyl so terrible? Well, it was a it was a, a different type of reactor that was based okay. on a, a very old design, first developed during World War II by the United States, and uh, it, it, it was called a graphite-moderated water-cooled reactor. It did not have the concrete dome, mm -hmm. the secondary containment that we have in modern reactors. But what the, happened? I'm sorry. Well, was the type of radiation then different than the kind of radiation that we're experiencing in Fukushima right now? Or uh, no, no. I mean, you know, when you when you split the atoms of uranium, mm -hmm. uh, right. they create these uh, radioactive products, and they, you know, they're they're not much different. Well, uh, but what happened at, at Chernobyl was a combination of human error and inherent design flaws, again, coming together at once in the worst possible way, which resulted first in a rather huge explosion, followed by six days of fire that released uh, copious amounts of radioactivity nearby and all over most of Western Europe and Northern Europe, and also in the Northern Hemisphere. And how does that compare to what's happening at Fukushima? It seems to me, and I'm not sure about this, when the when those hydrogen explosions happened at Fukushima, did, did that not, uh, I mean, I kind of assume there's been a lot of structural damage to those concrete domes. Well, we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, you know, um, the aftermath of Cher Chernobyl is as such that uh, we, we may never know the total amount of radioactivity was released and how much, where it went and the like. I mean, we, we certainly have a reasonably good understanding of the land contamination it created by cesium-137, but uh, I've seen some, some current estimates uh, uh, by uh, Austrian and German uh, uh, nuclear authorities that suggests that the the amount of radiation that might have been released so far at Fukushima is roughly half of that of Chernobyl. Really, about half is that? That's because of the containment domes, or just the the fact they've kept it cool enough that the fire it's hasn't a been. It's a combination raided. of things. It's mm -hmm. the different reactor designs, the different circumstances that are unfolding, uh, and uh, and uh, the different. Um, uh, uh, just, just the fact that these reactors, you know, didn't uh, uh, didn't catch fire, blow open their containments, and the fire didn't rage for uh, a week before they could figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. You have to understand too that Chernobyl ultimately required somewhere on the order of eight hundred thousand emergency responders and cleanup workers over a period of several years. It rendered an area uninhabitable because of the uh, deposit of. Cesium-137, which is a, a, a very radioactive material that persists in the environment for hundreds of years, it rendered an area roughly the size of half of New Jersey uninhabitable, and 180,000 people had to be permanently evacuated from that zone. Uh, and how long did Chernobyl last? Well, I mean, it's la it still lasts. Well, well sure, uh, but I, sure at, what, at what point did they... Con consider that the fire was out or, or the well, it you know, took the a week for the fire to stop it just burned itself out uh, yeah but then they had to figure out how to contain the mess so mm -hmm. it wouldn't uh continue to release copious amounts of dangerous radioactivity in the environment and they they rapidly built what they call a sarcophagus which was a uh, you know uh, they did it as quickly as possible and had to cut a lot of corners uh, sort of a large concrete uh, container over the rubble uh, at Chernobyl, and now that sarcophagus is leaking and cracking, uh, the contents of the Chernobyl reactor, uh, what's left, are still so highly radioactive that uh, uh, it's in some 
circumstance, it's just going to be simply impossible to even send robotic equipment in there. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, and there's also fear that the radioactive rubble at Chernobyl uh, may still be reactive and undergo uh, nuclear reactions that could lead to large releases once again. So this, hmm. these accidents don't sort of have, uh, uh, you know, beginning, middles, and ends. Uh, their ends are, are open-ended. Right. I mean, how long does it take for, for this radio uh, activity to just burn itself away? I mean, what are the half-lives well, of the, I mean, the, the, the principal bad actor in terms of radioactive isotopes is cesium-137 because it volatilizes uh, and gets out uh, into the air and can deposit over large swaths of land. And it gives off a form of external penetrating radiation we call gamma rays. So if you're standing around near an area where there's been a significant deposit of this material, your whole body is getting irradiated, possibly at levels that would prove hazardous. Then, uh, when it, after a while, when it sort of remains in the environment, uh, it gets absorbed in uh, plants and animals and foodstuffs as if it were potassium. And as it passes up through the food chain, it gets more concentrated. It has a half-life of about 30 years, and the rule of thumb is that it takes about 10 half-lives for these materials to decay down to a level that are, that is presumed to be safe. So wow. or it's hundreds of years at, at the minimum. All right, let's go back to what you said about uh, um, Fukushima now being about half as bad as Chernobyl. Well, I mean, this is what some of the preliminary estimates of what mm -hmm. might have been released are. I mean, the truth is we aren't going to know exactly how much was released for quite a while. Well, uh, does this, because apparently right now, I guess one of the units is still smoking, uh, which is, must be releasing a lot of radiation. I mean, it's still pretty hot there. In fact, they've had to pull out, I think. Uh, I'm not sure they're even working on it. Right. And, I mean, the other thing that's making it, you know, it's a very difficult problem, and the people who are going on that site, are, some of them are doing heroic things. Sure. Uh, and, and, are, and are risking their lives uh, to, you know, to, to reduce the, the hazards to others. Um, the, there is a combination of radiation problems at this site that, uh, are, that are, are very very dangerous to workers right now. The spent fuel pools, uh, because of their, their, their drop in levels, their rise in temperatures, were giving off high radiation dose rates, like at, at, at distances of 50 to 100 yards. The dose rates at those distances would be life-threatening. And so, you know, if you saw some of the footage of, uh, you know, helicopters trying to fly over the pools and the deposit water that they couldn't get low enough because the radiation dose rates were so high. Uh, the water cannons they've been using to spray, you know, thousands of tons of water essentially into these pools uh, are remotely operated, and people have to run in there for in a matter of minutes and then leave in a matter of minutes. So that's one danger. The other danger is that the, um, uh, the, the, the reactors... Uh, the hydrogen explosions, the leaks, and the like, have probably deposited um, radioactivity on the site and nearby in hot spots that you have to be very careful about. Uh, there's been huge radiation buildup inside the buildings and control rooms, and on top of that, you know, the earthquake, the tsunami, the 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 subsequent explosions and problems at the reactors have crippled a lot of the equipment that has to be operable in order to stabilize the situation, specifically to provide cooling to the reactor core and to the pools. You know, I have one more question for you, too. At the beginning of, uh, I guess, about a week and a half ago, they were saying that there was actually a fifth reactor at another plant up the road. Uh, did, did you hear anything about that? Because then well, they just stopped were, talking there, about it. There were a handful of reactors that had some problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, we haven't heard much about them, but they, were, they did not appear to be anywhere near uh, uh, the nature of, of, of destructiveness and danger as the, uh, 
the the the, the Fukushima Dashail units. All right, and and the other thing I wanted to discuss is that this is a kind of a factor of time as well. I mean, Chernobyl, uh, I guess, it burned for uh, you know maybe eight days total before. I mean, well, I realize I mean, we're, we can talk about the long term, but what my question is is the Fukushima. If it if it burns, you know, maybe slower for a month or six weeks, is that over that course of time could we possibly see? You know, more and more radiation obviously is going to get into the. Uh, well, I mean, I think the problem. Well, if the problem gets worse, it's because their efforts to stabilize the the the, re, the reactor, two or three of these reactors, and two or three of these spent fuel pools have failed. And it looks to me that they're slowly making progress in that regard. And so I'm hoping that that progress will continue. All right. Well. Uh Oh, let me take a moment to just tell everyone, if you've just joined us, it's 9.35 right now. Uh, this is the Thursday Morning Report on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm speaking uh, currently with Bob Alvarez of the Institute for Policy Studies, and we're discussing the uh, Fukushima event and uh, uh, the nuclear uh, radiation that is spreading. Uh, in fact, let's go on to that next topic. How does the radiation then get itself out into the environment? Uh, how does it spread? Uh, what can we expect, especially those of us here in California are a little bit concerned about the proximity. Uh, so can you just discuss that for a little while? Well, I think the radiation uh, the radiation that's been escaping from this from this accident has been primarily airborne radiation. And um, for the most part, it's been blowing out to sea until in, until the la recent few days, where it, the winds have changed and it's uh, the radiation plumes. Some of them have started to deposit uh, inland on Japan and have created problems, such as uh, making the the tap water unfit in Tokyo for children to drink. Yeah, you know, NPR tried to switch that this morning, and I thought it was uh, a little bit odd. They, they tried to tell everybody that everything was okay with the tap water and that they were wrong yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, well, I I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, that. look, we're, there's a lot of information going here, but the one thing we have to understand is that when you hear these statements being made about little radiation escaped and no harm, uh, you sort of have to ask the question, no harm to whom? Right. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the most vulnerable groups of, of humans in, to radiation uh, are really the very young, the infants and, uh, and pregnant moms, mm -hmm. the fetus and the embryo. For example, an infant is considered to be at least 15 times more vulnerable to the hazards of radiation than a, an adult male. Uh, women, uh, by, by virtue of their gender, are considered to be more vulnerable to certain kinds of, of radiation damage, such as uh, breast cancer and thyroid cancer, than men. So it's not a... Uh, you can't make blanket statements. Now, ha you know, having said that, the measurements I've seen that have been picked up and reported in the United States uh, appear to be very small at this time. And so, um, and they, they certainly don't, have not reached a level where uh, the United States has to do things like restrict water supplies or foodstuffs. And what kind of radiation are we seeing in the United States right now? I think uh, I've heard xenon is the one that's kind of spreading the fastest. I think it's the lightest. Yes, it's a, a gas, a noble gas. Mm -hmm. So it goes up higher into the atmosphere. And, then and I think you're, you're, well, well, you're probably seeing minuscule quantities of the spent of the fuel debris, which would include other fission products like cesium, strontium, iodine one thirty one. Uh huh. So there will be small uh, ruthen amounts of these ruthenium other. and and stuff like that. But uh, I think that that the uh, the large radiation releases that occurred in the last week mostly went out to sea, and the the thing I'm wondering about now is um, how much of that might be absorbed in the food chain by the fish, uh, particularly since fish is the major protein staple for the Japanese people. Well, and this is this is the worst part we haven't talked about yet, but it, it, radiation then bioaccumulates in the environment. Can you discuss that for a second then? 
Well, what happens is that these radioactive isotopes mimic the the elements that are necessary for uh, for foods, uh, and so if let's say uh, iodine one thirty one deposits on grass, uh, the cows will eat the grass, and then they will concentrate that. Uh, in the milk, and milk is often is an indicator actually because it really it, it really concentrates in milk. right, and iodine is very rapidly absorbed over you know, uh, and so uh-huh. it it concentrates in the milk and it concentrates you know it concentrates more for example in goat's milk than cow's milk things like that, and then if the uh-huh. milk is drunk within that period of time when the radioiodine is still present, uh, the infants. Uh, in particular, are uh, are are mu- uh, much higher risk because uh, what radiation does is uh, why why younger people are vul- more young people the very young are vulnerable to radiation is that they are growing and they are their cells are rapidly dividing and radiation causes the most damage to rapidly dividing cells. The thyroid, the human thyroid itself, is a very small organ. So, uh, uh, and so when you have a radioactive material that selectively concentrates in the thyroid, it gives the thyroid a potentially significant dose relative to your entire body. And that's what the nature of the risk is, and and raises the risk of thyroid cancer Mm -hmm. and other non-cancerous thyroid diseases. Um, so let's talk about how we can track the, well, first, since we're talking about the bioaccumulation, uh, do you expect that maybe over the course of the next six months or year that uh, California might, you know, should we, should we have our milk tested or should we be watching well, I our think, spinach? I, or? Think I would, I would have reason to believe that the milk's already being tested. Mm-hmm. And, no, uh, and, and I, I'm assuming that our government authorities are being forthright about what they're finding. Uh-huh. I haven't seen any evidence to the, to the contrary. All right, very good. Um, then let's talk about a little bit about, well, where, first of all, is there a website that you would recommend where we can go to kind of track these radiation numbers? Is there somebody that's doing a good job of, of showing us what's, what's going on? Um, I honestly, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at multiple sources, and I'm at a stage because of uh, just how busy I am that I haven't been able to I'm, I'm not able to provide that to you right now. I would, I might be able to do it in the near future, though. Okay, fair enough. Um, then let's talk about how to kind of read these. You know, the ones that I've seen just kind of have numbers over different cities, and I'm not sure, you know, what kind of radiation they're reading. Is there there's going to be a, and is there a difference between uh, typical background radiation and then the presence of, of well, this actual fallout? You know, I think you have to understand that what you're looking at is snapshots in time, and the radiation is going to be fluctuating. It's not going to be necessarily constant. And so uh, it's going to tell you what they found, especially in terms of plumes and things like that, at a given period of time. And so, uh, and this is dependent on what's being released, what the wind directions are, what the weather conditions are, if there's rain occurring. There are lots of sort of variables in this. And so it's hard to sort of take one set of readings and say, aha, this is it, we know it all now. Mm-hmm. You have to, there have to be several different readings of several media over time and to understand whether these fluctuations, whether the trend is going up, for example, uh, and, uh, over this time in, the, in, these, uh, in these sort of spikes in readings, uh, and what is being picked up where, what's in the cloud, where is it depositing, what the wind directions are, what's being now measured on the ground, what's being measured on the grass, in the cows, in the milk. Uh, and the foodstuffs, and all this has to be sort of put together in a a coherent picture, and we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. How do they measure? What is it a millisievert? That's what I've heard, but I think there's also another... um... Well, the United States tends to use an older system of nomenclature, which is uh, RADS, radiation-absorbed dose, REMS, Rankins, and their conversions to that... uh, uh, that they're used, and so uh, I tend to go with the, uh, you know, it's a, a difference between the metric system and the U.S. system. Sure. 
So, um, and that's I good tend to, know. to I'm t- I tend to be old fashioned. That's uh, how I kind of uh, address it. So I have to convert these things uh, to to the uh, units I'm more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what kind of then? What kind of numbers are we looking at before we need to think about uh, you know taking some kind of action? I know a lot of people are telling telling us now not to freak out and and all start dosing ourselves with potassium iodide. Um, which is, I, I don't think it's necessary, but you know, I just wanted to get your opinion on that. Like what kind of numbers are we going to be looking at before, uh, hopefully the government I, I, will tell I, us. I, in truth, <laughs> I I'm not, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball and I can't predict that. Okay. But ha- I think that right now what we're seeing is that what's showing up in the United States is very dilute. Uh-huh. All right, sounds good. Well, we've got about 15 minutes left in the program. Uh, this is the Thursday Morning Report. I'm your host, Doug McKenty, and uh, I'm speaking with Robert Alvarez of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. We're talking about the Fukushima event this morning. I will start to uh, open up the last part of the program to uh, call-ins. So if you have a question for our guest, 895-2448 gets you in the studio. And here we can take a couple calls. I know that uh, people are interested in asking you some questions. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Yes, good morning. Uh, fascinating. Thanks. Um, I can give out um, one website. The Union of Concerned Scientists are doing a good job of doing uh, good science around what's happening on as well as usually a daily update. And that is at www.ucsusa.org. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I think the caller is... Uh, is, is correct in that. Okay, and then I have a question for you, sir. All right, very good. Okay, um, could you please clear up for us what I think is a real um, misconception when the various government agencies are talking about equivalencies of radiation dosages? Because they're always comparing dosages to, say, like a chest X-ray or walking through a TSA screener. Those are rays. But they're not talking about what happens when you inhale the stuff, you know, radioactive particles, and that's what's being released. That's just not a one-time exposure. That's in your body. So could you please talk about the misconceptions people have around well, those I think issues? That, I, think you. That okay, comparing, I think that comparing, you know, these uh, uh, radiation exposures, potential radiation exposures to things like x-rays, in fact, the Japanese authorities were comparing them to uh, CAT scans, and uh, it's very misleading, and I think your point's well taken, is that we're not looking at uh, an x-ray that you get in a doctor's office or at a laboratory. Uh, you are talking about a, a different type of radiation and a different kind of risk, uh, and, and a, a big part of that risk is uh, the potential for getting the radioactive materials inside your body from inhalation and ingestion. And, uh, and, and, and we're not talking about, and we're talking about, and often to risk to specific organs because of the, the chemical behavior of the, uh, radioactive materials. I mean, I don't envy the people that have to translate this for the public to try to provide them with, sure. uh, some sort of information. It's a very, it's sort of complicated, but at the same time, I think that it's disingenuous to try to compare this to things that are seemingly benign uh, when, in fact, that, you know, Americans are getting more and more radiation from medical sources than any other thing in the, uh, any other source in the world or in the country. And these, these exposures keep going up and up, and, and the use of things like CAT scans, which are on the high end of, of exposure in terms of medical radiation are being used more and more, and that's a problem. And uh, I think that it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's not very uh, accurate or honest to try to compare these uh, exposures to, uh, uh, to the kind of exposures you might get in a medical setting. I mean, the second issue is that you go to a doctor or to a laboratory and uh, because there is also some inherent benefit that might result from getting exposed to radiation. In this case, uh, you are being exposed uh, not because you'll achieve some sort of benefit or not because you made the choice to be exposed. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, all right, cool. I'll go ahead and take another call. Oh, there was one thing uh, that I wanted to bring up. Uh, it's it's the lighter particles uh, that we are probably going to be more exposed to because they're the ones that are going to make it across uh, the Pacific Ocean. But the lighter ones are generally less harmful. Is that true than well, the heavier particles? They tend to have shorter half-lives. Okay. And they tend to be diffuse and dilute more than... Because uh, they blow, they uh, just than, blow around than the, more. Uh, than the particulates and the uh, the... the, the, the the more the, the, the worst actors. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's some good news. <laughs> uh, okay, a few uh, ten more minutes left in the program, and I will continue to take your calls. Uh, good morning. You're on KZYX. Good morning. Hi. Um, I haven't heard a, a comparison to something I'm interested in, which is we grew up with atomic testing in the atmosphere that floated all around the world for years, and probably still is. And I was wondering whether the mass of all of that is equal to or less than what is happening now with these reactor uh, events. And I'll, I'll well, I think I'll the, take my answer the, on the air. Okay, I, I can hear you. Uh, atomic testing by the United States and Russia and other nations, Britain, France, uh, especially the open air testing, released fantastic amounts of radiation in the environment. <laughs> Uh, there was a series of tests in the Marshall Islands in 1954 that released many times more radioactive materials in the environment than Chernobyl. And we exploded uh, numerous tests in Nevada that, uh, in the open air that, uh, where the plumes and the radioactive clouds flew over most of the United States eastward and deposited uh, a lot of radioactivity on the ground. In 1997, the National Cancer Institute was forced to release a study which they had uh, decided not to release after they completed it five years earlier that indicated that um, large areas of the United States were significantly contaminated by radioactive iodine from <clears throat> testing in Nevada. In fact, the levels that they estimated were of such concentrations that if uh, at the, at the if they had had in place, which they didn't, uh, which we now do, uh, these what are called protective action guides. In other words, uh, if a nuclear accident were to happen here and radioactive iodine would be measured in food stuff, mainly dairy products, uh, that if they reached a certain level, they, the, the, the food, the dairy products, would have to be removed from human consumption uh, these the concentrations they were they were they were estimating in milk in particular were so high that there would have been periods of months where uh, we would have not allowed human consumption in fairly large regions of the United States. Uh, the National Cancer Institute finally had to concede that uh, the these. The, just the radioiodine alone, they only looked at one isotope. There were other isotopes that sort of got released and made their way into the environment, and we don't really know what those have done. But for radioiodine, they it, they did calculate eventually that uh, somewhere in, in, in ter terms of a median estimate that about 75,000 excess cancers, thyroid cancers, were likely to result from those exposures in the United States. Wow, so so we've kind of uh, we've done it to ourselves even more than than what Fukushima might uh, end up doing. Or well, and I think what that has done, what that 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 point of time in our history has also done, is that it did. If, if you know, those of us who have been involved in nuclear policy for several years are aware of what was happening back there and have studied the sort of the history of that period mm -hmm. and. There was a, a tremendous public outcry against it that stopped it, and uh, and and uh, when it was stopped, it 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 was a huge uh, sort of form of discredit of the federal nuclear industry, which gave rise to nuclear power. And I think that Americans in general have had this cultural mistrust of things nuclear since then. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll uh, I'll take another call. Uh, good morning. You're on the Thursday morning report. Do you have a question? Yeah. Good morning, Doug and Robert. Um, all that stuff that we've done to ourselves, I refer to as friendly fallout. Uh, the right. the 
Uh, oh, I do have a website I want to give out uh, concerning the possible tracking of this and suggestions on how to deal with it. It's Committee to Bridge the Gap. That's G-A-P. Committee to Bridge the Gap dot org. And Dan Hirsch has been working on these issues for, well, decades. Uh, some of the things that I've seen on the news reports indicated that landfall was made with some of the radionuclides about a week ago, last Thursday, Friday, and it hit, of course, Cape Mendocino from, like, Eureka to Fort Bragg was the initial area, and it probably has been dissipated to the point where it's not going to affect us, but I'm, I don't like the terminology that they use, no immediate health effect. If there was no health effect, I'd say, hmm, well, but no immediate to me means, well, you won't notice it for 20 years because it's not immediate, and that's when the cancer will show up. But the biggest thing I've seen on these news reports is the 104 active nuclear plants. They're leaving out places like Hanford and Washington, Berkeley, Livermore, and the one that concerns me most is the closed plant. How many more of them are there, like up in Humboldt near Eureka, where they have numerous, uh, uh, basically what they call depleted um, uh, Power, uh, control or the uh, depleted yeah, yeah, power rods, the and they are right. not fuel, allowing that, that information to come out. And if there's an earthquake, the water dissipates. There's no power. That's the worst problem that's happening in Japan. So I'd appreciate it if you could address that. And thanks for the show, Doug. All right, thanks, Jeff. Well, I'm, I, 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 yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you about uh, uh, committee to bridge the gap and their website. I think that they are, okay, they are, they, they provide solid information. And they are, you know, and they're reliable and 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 uh, um, uh, and factual. Um, what uh, the caller was referring to is not only the commercial nuclear power plants, but also the Energy Department nuclear weapons facilities that have left behind uh, a lot of of unstable uh, radioactive waste at the Hanford site, for example. Are we in the habit, like at the Fukushima plant, of storing the the waste uh, all over the nuclear power plant instead of well, removing there, it? Well, there there are thirty four reactors in the United States that share the same design as the reactors at the mm-hmm. Fukushima site. These are called boiling water reactors, and they have pools that are seventy or eighty feet above ground and are next to the top of the reactor core. The difference is that uh, the United States has a much larger uh, number of operating and also uh, decommissioned reactors where there is spent fuel, and that uh, at the operating reactors in particular, uh, you will find that the amount of spent fuel in these, in these pools are four to five times greater than those that are currently in the individual at the Fukushima reactors. Oh, wow. And they're densely compacted. Uh, so Do these co- things have... Uh, I'm sorry? Excuse me, I was just saying, is, is, is immersing them in water enough, or does there well, have what, to be what water? Of- these pools were only meant to be temporary mm-hmm. uh, storage pools to allow the spent fuel to cool off for a period of three to five years. And now they've been sitting in there for decades. Right. And... Um, uh, if your readers are interested, I wrote an opinion piece in the yesterday's Los Angeles Times about this problem. And uh, my colleagues and I, uh, in 2003, did a very in-depth study of uh, the vulnerabilities of, of these spent fuel pools. And at that time, we were looking at what might happen in, the case, in case of terrorist acts because of... Uh, uh, we were in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. And what we pointed out was that these spent fuel pools are holding roughly four times more than their original designs, uh, that if something or somebody were to cause these pools to drain, uh, the fuel would heat up uh, to the point where the cladding around the fuel would basically catch fire, go exothermic, and would release catastrophic amounts of cesium, radioactive cesium. And we estimated that uh, a single spent fuel pool fire in the United States could render an area uninhabitable substantially greater than that created by Chernobyl. Hmm. Uh, we also recommended that uh, this is something we can reduce this risk greatly if we thin out these pools and put about 75% of their current content into dry casks that are hardened to protect protect them from 
things like aerial impacts or um, uh, or people showing up with uh, you know uh, anti tank gun weapons and things like that. Um, our study was uh, hotly disputed by the nuclear industry and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, Congress then asked the National Academy of Sciences to uh, sort this out, and in 2004, they basically agreed with what we had to say in terms of the potential consequences. Uh, I have reason to believe that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has effectively ignored uh, these warnings. And the spent fuel pools, those are also the ones that you're most most concerned with in, in Fukushima right now. I mean, it's just, it's really yeah. the nuclear waste that's I mean, starting to pile up. In a, in a typical nuclear power plant, uh, operating nuclear power plant, uh, you know, the one that I'm thinking of right now, there's a Columbia Generating Station, which is actually on the Hanford site. Uh, it's a commercial nuclear power plant in a defunct nuclear weapons production site that also it has a tremendous amount of radioactive waste left over from making plutonium. But this reactor is a nuclear power plant. It is a boiling water reactor. It's been operating for the last um, 25, 26 years. Uh, and it has uh, more radio, it has basically about 50 times more radioactive cesium in its pools than was released at Chernobyl. All right. Well, Mr. Alvarez, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, thanks for being on the program. Is Thank there, you for having me on. Uh, anything you want to say about the No, no, I, I appreciate or? being on because usually, um, uh, you know, the, the the opportunities I've had to discuss this, especially on radio and TV, have been, you know, five minutes right. type stuff, and, and uh, it's hard to really uh, explain explain a lot of this stuff in five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for coming and helping us wade through some of the spin and, and figure out the facts here today. Thank you for having me on. All right, you got it. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that was Robert Alvarez of the Institute for Policy Studies talking about the Fukushima event. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of your calls. Uh, we just had so much to talk about, but the time is now 10.01, so thanks everybody for listening, uh, and especially those of you who called in. KZYX, you've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX, 90.7 FM, Philo, KZYZ, 91.5 FM, Willits and Ukiah, that's 88.1 FM, Fort Bragg, this is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, streaming on the web at kzyx.org.